Blog Talk Radio. From the far reaches of the known universe, we are proud to present Brother Harold Muhammad, soldier, scientist, scholar. Blog Talk Radio's finest. Not so mad science. On Black Hole Radio. Assalamu alaikum. And welcome to tonight's edition of Not So Mad Science here on the Black Hole Radio Network. Once again, as always, coming to you live from the city of Detroit, Motown. Just because Barry Gordy took Motown to L.A. does not mean Detroit has lost its soul. I'm your host, Brother Harold Muhammad. Now, just when we thought it could not get worse, it has with COVID. It is absolutely fascinating how the words of the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan have not been heeded. Reports are coming in from all over the country to the CDC and the FDA, hospitals and other institutions. Reports of injuries or death after taking the COVID vaccine. You would think that the whole idea and purpose, or at least any normal human being would think, that if you take a vaccine and you're vaccinated against a disease, that you have no worry of being exposed to people that have the disease or the sickness. But this is not the case when it comes to the COVID-19 and its plethora of variants, disease. Many people are being caught up in this, well, it's not SARS, it's COVID. Let me share this with you and make this very clear. The fully scientific name for what everyone has foreshortened to be called COVID-19 is in fact And in truth, SARS-CoV-19, but it is in fact, and in truth, goes further. It is severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2. It is called COVID because the virus was supposedly started in 2019. There aren't 19 variations, at least that, not that we know of. It is COVID-19 because it is thought to be diagnosed fully in 2019. But the point I'm after here is this. The CDC has signed off on along with the FDA, has signed off on a third shot for the immunocompromised. 
At least that's what was in the news last week. The various data released on Friday by the CDC showed a total of 571,831 reports of adverse events from all age groups following the COVID vaccines, including 12,791 deaths and 77,490 serious injuries as a result of taking the vaccine. And that's between December 14th of 2020 and August 6th of last week, a week ago. Again, drawing on the research of Megan Redshaw from the Children's Health Defense, data released August 13th, last week, by the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, known as the CDC, showed that between December 14, 2020, and August 6th of last week, 2021, and I already gave you the numbers, 571,000, let's just say 572,000 percentage-wise, 572,000 plus or minus total adverse events with just about 13,000 people dying from taking the vaccine, which is an increase of 425 people from last week. Think of this now. Let me let me repeat this for you. The whole function and purpose of a vaccine is so that you can be immunized against some disease, virus, bacteria, or whatever have you. Yet we are now finding out which we knew had we heeded the call that this vaccine was a non-starter. It is ineffective and useless against the vaccine because not only once you're vaccinated can you still get the sickness, you can die. How do you know? How do we know? How do I know? For those institutions that are reporting as required by law to the VAERS, the Adverse Events Report of the CDC for vaccines, 12,791 people have died between December 10th of last year and August 6th of this year. That's just a week ago, which is an increase of 425 people over the previous week. Which is a, now, there were 77,490 reports of serious injuries as a result of being vaccinated with one of the three vaccines that are available on the market today. 77,490 reports. That is also an increase of 7,385 persons 
compared to the previous week? Have I just become that demented and lost in the ability to read a definition in the dictionary that says once you are vaccinated, you are now free of being sick from a particular virus. This is not the case with the, and I'm going to give the technical scientific name, the severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2, known as COVID-19, because it was supposedly diagnosed in 2019. In the United States right now, 349.8 million COVID vaccine doses have been administered as of August 6th, a week ago. This includes 140 million doses of Moderna, 196 million doses of Pfizer, and 13 million doses of the Johnson & Johnson. Now, here's an interesting fact, some factoids here. The increase in deaths from one week to the other is 2.24%. Uh, there are 16,044 cases of permanent disability as a result of taking the vaccine, 2.81% from the previous week. Emergency doctor visits in the hospitals around the country, there have been 70,000 610 visits. That is an increase of 12.35% from the previous week. Birth defects, 351, a 0.06% increase from last week. Has America become blind to the facts? Or are we unwilling to accept the truth? This data that I'm quoting comes directly from reports submitted to the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, VAERS, which is the primary government-funded system for reporting adverse vaccine reactions in the United States. Every Friday, Theirs makes public all vaccine injury reports received as, a, as of a specified date, usually about a week prior to the release date. Those reports submitted to theirs require further investigation before a casual relationship can be confirmed. This week's U.S. data for 12 to 17-year-olds show the following. 16,408 total adverse events, including 983 rated as serious and 18 reported deaths between 12 and 17 years old. 
two of the 18 deaths were suicides. The most recent report of death includes a 15-year-old boy whose VAERS ID number is 1498080, who previously had COVID, was diagnosed with cardiomyopathy in May of 2021, and died four days after receiving his second dose of the Pfizer vaccine on June 18th. This happened when he collapsed on the soccer field and went into ventricular tracheocardia. There was a 13-year-old girl whose VAERS ID number is 1505250 who died after suffering a heart condition after receiving her first dose of the Pfizer vaccine. Other deaths include two 13-year-old boys who died two days after receiving a Pfizer vaccine, a 13-year-old boy who died after receiving the Moderna vaccine, three 15-year-olds, five 16-year-olds, and three 17-year-olds. I could give you the identifying number so they can see that I'm telling you the truth. Another interesting little fact. 2,424 reports of anaphylaxis among 12 to 17-year-olds with 99% of cases attributed to the fire vaccine. 419 reports of myocarditis and pericarditis, which are heart inflammation either on the exterior muscles or the interior muscles of the cardiac heart muscles, with 414 cases attributed to the Pfizer. 81 reports of blood clotting disorders, with all of those cases attributed to Pfizer. This week, the total United States bears documentation and data from two December 14th of last year and August of this year for all age groups combined show a 21% of deaths were related to cardiac disorders. 54% who died were male. 43% were female, and the remaining deaths did not include the gender of the deceased. Age of death was 73. As of August 6th this year, 2,695 pregnant women reported adverse events directly related to the COVID vaccine, including 931 reports of miscarriages or premature births. Of the 2,585 cases of Bell's palsy reported, 50% were attributed to Pfizer, 43% to Moderna, and 6% to Johnson & Johnson. Now, don't let the low level in the numbers trick you into thinking that one vaccine is better than the other. No. Pfizer has sold the most danger, followed by Moderna, Lastly, by Johnson & Johnson, 
who have sold the least amount of vaccine in the United States. 123,496 reports of anaphylaxis, with 45% of those cases coming from the Pfizer, 47% from Moderna, and 8% from Johnson & Johnson. Of that, 8,218 reports of blood clotting disorders. Of those, 3,428 reports come from Pfizer. 3,510 reports for Moderna and 1,695 reports for Johnson & Johnson. So don't let yourself be tricked. The numbers are bad all over. 2,076 cases of myocarditis and pericarditis with 1,309 going to Pfizer, 690 cases to Moderna, and 71 cases to Johnson & Johnson. Now here's the rub, as they say in theater. The FDA authorizes extra vaccine doses for people who are considered immunocompromised patients. What? The U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, on August 12th, last week, authorized a third dose of the Pfizer-BioNTech and the Moderna COVID vaccine for people with compromised immune systems. We just deal in deaths out here, baby. We're just dealing best death. Bang, zoom. The CDC also gave final approval to the third dose following the August 13th unanimous recommendation of the agency's advisory committee on the immunization practices. ASIP. I reported this last week. Now, the defender of the Children's Health Defense, they reported on August neither vaccine has yet received full FDA approval and neither has completed the late-stage clinical trials proving a third dose will boost immunity or work against the COVID variant. The FDA amended emergency use authorization allows people who have had an organ transplant or those with a similar level of weakened immune systems to get an extra COVID vaccine dose. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine was not included because there wasn't sufficient data on the boosters according to either agency. Interesting. The FDA's decision allows doctors to boost immunity in certain immunocompromised individuals who need extra extra protection from COVID-19, according to Dr. Janet Woodcock, the FDA's acting commissioner. She tweeted this out on August 12th. Quote, 
others who are fully vaccinated are adequately protected and do not need an additional dose of the COVID-19 vaccine at this time. Again, quoted from Dr. Janet Woodcock on Twitter. Now, here's the thing. Again, if people who have been vaccinated considered adequately protected, why is there such a push in the media that people who do not have the vaccine and do not intend to take it, that the vaccinated protect themselves from these persons? If this is true, then you do not need to protect yourself from anyone who has not been vaccinated because as a vaccinated person, you are protected. Is this not the case? Well, what? (laughs) Now, I'm going to repeat this again. According to Dr. Janet Woodcock of the FDA, she says, and I quote, others who are fully vaccinated right there, if you are adequately protected from sickness, from the COVID-19 and its variants, then why must the non-vaccinated find themselves to be protected from the vaccinated if you are vaccinated? Why do vaccinated people have to wear a mask around the non-vaccinated? Why do vaccinated people have to stay clear and continue to practice social distancing from the non-vaccinated if you are protected. What? Hmm? Don't seem right, do it. The vulnerable group of patients make up less than 3% of the U.S. adults, according to the CDC director, Rochelle Walensky. Heart inflammation after COVID vaccines more common than the CDC claims, and we'll say that again, heart disease, or rather I should say heart inflammation to receiving the COVID vaccine is more common than the CDC is claiming. New research shows public health officials claim cases of myocarditis or pericarditis, which is, again, I'll say it again, inflammation of the pericardium muscles on the interior of the heart or with myocarditis in inflammation correction, that's, that would be the exterior, or myocarditis, which is the inflammation of the muscles on the interior of the heart. The new research shows U.S. health officials, they're saying the vaccine, or let me read, say this again because I want to make sure I say this properly. Heart inflammation at the COVID vaccines, more common than the CDC claims. The new research shows U.S. public health officials 
claimed cases of myocarditis and pericarditis following COVID vaccinations are rare. But new research published online in the Journal of the American Medical Association, the standard bearer for dispersal of medical information, shows that they may happen more often than reported. Post-vaccine myocarditis and pericarditis also appear to represent two distinct syndromes, according to Dr. George Diaz with the Providence Regional Medical Center in Everett. He told this to the Medscape Cardiology. Dr. Diaz and his colleagues reviewed 2,287,000 electric electronic medical records of people who received at least one COVID vaccination. The records obtained from 40 hospitals in Washington, Oregon, Montana, and California showed 20 people had vaccine-related myocarditis. That's one person per 100,000. And 37 had pericarditis. That's one point people per 100,000. A recent CDC report based on Navarre's data suggested an incidence of myocarditis of about 4.8 cases per million people following receipt of an mRNA COVID vaccine. The new Journal of American Medicine, the JAMA, Journal of American Medical Association, their book, their Bible, showed a similar pattern to the CDC study. Although at a higher incidence of myocarditis and pericarditis after vaccination, suggesting vaccines adverse events under reporting. So somebody's lying. But we figured that out a week ago and two weeks ago when we discussed and shared that a lot of hospitals aren't reporting the adverse events to the CDC as they're required to do by law. The Journal of American Medical Association's reports also stated, additionally, pericarditis may be more common than the myocarditis among older patients. Quote, I'm quoting Dr. Diaz here. Our study resulted in higher numbers of cases probably because we searched the EMR, the electronic medical report, and also because VAERS requires doctors to report suspected cases voluntarily. So they went a little bit, they went deeper to make sure that there was no shortage of data and information. The research calculated the average monthly number of cases of myocarditis or pericarditis during the pre-vaccine period of January 2019 through January 2021. 
which was 16.9 compared with 27.3 during the vaccine period of February through May of 2021. That means the number of pericarditis cases during the same period were 49.1% and 78.8%. The author said the limitations of their analysis included potential missed cases outside care settings and the misdiagnoses of pericarditis or pericarditis, which would underestimate the incident as well as inaccurate EMR vaccination information. The mom of the 14-year-old boy who developed the myocarditis after the Pfizer vaccine no longer trust the public health officials. But it took the death of her child for her to accept what was being told to her before she gave that to her child. But in an exclusive interview last week with the defender of the Children's Health Defense, Emily Joe said before her son Aiden got his first dose of the Pfizer vaccine, she was led to believe his chance of suffering an adverse reaction was one in a million. One in a million. Well, he's not one in a million. He's one of several thousand. Aiden, a 14-year-old from Georgia, had no history of COVID or pre-existing conditions, except for asthma. On June 10th, a month ago, several days after his second Pfizer shot, Aiden woke his mother up at 4.30 in the morning because his chest hurt and he couldn't breathe. Emily Joe said she was aware of the potential side effects of heart inflammation, but she believed the CDC, which said the reaction was very rare and mild. What they didn't explain is that mild means hospital care and follow-up care indefinitely. And to quote her once again, Emily Joe, the mother of young Aiden, the biggest problem is they, the CDC, are not explaining what mild myocarditis means. Aiden's cardiologist told us no case of myocarditis is mild. That's like saying a heart attack is mild. This is what the cardiologist told her. Emily Joe said her son tires easily, and his recovery will be a long process. She said all her children are fully vaccinated, and she was one of the most trusting advocates of the CDC and the American Academy of Pediatrics until her son experienced his vaccine injury. According to a tweet sent out by Robert F. Kennedy Jr., he said, Another sad story. 
Mom so proud that her 14-year-old son could get the COVID vaccine. But now doctors confirms her son meets the criteria for having post-vaccine myocarditis. Is he really one in a million? And now he has a heart condition for life. In another exclusive interview last week, the defender interviewed Deborah Brenner, who said her son, a healthy 25-year-old from Ohio, experienced myocarditis five days after his first dose of the Moderna COVID vaccine, which he got administered to him on July 22nd. Christopher Brenner developed a fever after the vaccine. And within five days, he was experiencing chest pains so intense he was unable to sleep. So he went to the Defiance Mercy Clinic. While Christopher was in the ER, tests showed his trophin levels were high. I was alarmed at that point, Mr. Brenner said. To quote one of the ER nurses, he says, one of the ER nurses mentioned it could be myocarditis from the vaccine, but everyone else played it down like it was serious. But it wasn't a big deal. When his numbers jumped higher, that's when it became more serious. When nurses took Christopher's trophin levels a second time, it was higher. So they kept him overnight. Christopher's troping levels continued to go up. So he was transferred by ambulance to the St. Vincent Hospital in Toledo, where the cardiologist in Toledo completely ignored the connection to the vaccine. It frustrated Mrs. Brenner that her son's condition was being taken so lightly. After four days of being hospitalized and treated with blood thinners and beta blockers, Christopher was discharged. His discharge doctors told him he didn't know why the other physicians didn't want to admit her son's reactions were caused by the vaccine. She said, and I quote, everybody has allergic reactions, and your son just had an allergic reaction to the vaccine, he said. I can't sit here and tell you 100% that the vaccine is the cause, but the fact that he got the vaccine and then days later started having issues, something was going on, end quote. Brothers and sisters, it is bad. We thought we were out of the woods. We're not. Once again, heed the words of the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan. Do not take that damnable vaccine. They're going to use every tool in the shop to force you to take that poison. Loss of job. Loss of your home. Anything they can do to force you to take that poison. Resist. 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 
the European drug regulators on August 11th said they are studying three new conditions reported by a small number of people after they took the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. The EMA, the European Medical Agency Safety Committee, is studying arrhythmia multiformis, which is a form of an allergic skin reaction or glomerular rule one varietes or kidney inflammation and nephrotic syndrome, which is a renal disorder characterized by heavy protein losses, heavy urinary protein losses. The EMA did not give details on how many cases of the new conditions were recorded, but it said it had requested more data from the vaccine makers. The regulator closed the new assessment as part of routine updates to the safety section of the authorized vaccine databases, did not recommend changes to the labels of the mRNA vaccines at this time. It was reported on August 11th in the Defender, once again, a new preprint study showed the mRNA vaccine's effectiveness plummeted in July when the Delta variant was dominant. Now, Moderna is only 76% effective, and Pfizer is only 42% effective against infection. The efficacy is a smokescreen. To quote Robert F. Kennedy Jr. once again, a new preprint study showed mRNA vaccine's effectiveness plummeted in July when the Delta variant was dominant. This is not so mad science, and I'm your host, Brother Harold Muhammad, here on the Black Hole Radio Network which raised concerns about the effectiveness of the mRNA COVID vaccines, particularly Pfizer's against the Delta variant, caught the attention of top Biden administration officials, according to Axios. And to quote them, Axios, it says, if that's not a wake-up call, I don't know what is, a senior Biden official told Axios. The study, which has yet to be peer-reviewed, compared the effectiveness of the Moderna and Pfizer COVID vaccines in the Mayo Clinic Health System from January to July in 2021, this year, during which time either the Alpha or the Delta variants were highly prevalent. Overall, researchers found Moderna's vaccine was 86% effective against infection over the study period, and Pfizer's was 76% effective. Moderna's vaccine was 92% effective against, excuse me, was 92% effective against hospitalization, 
and Pfizer's was 85% effective. There were no deaths in either cohort. In July, when the Delta variant was more prevalent, Moderna dropped to 76%, Pfizer to 42%. To quote Vensky Sanjaranan, Sanjarajan, boy, what a name, Venki Sanjarajan, and his co-author wrote the following, and I quote, we observed a pronounced reduction in the effectiveness of the BioNTech 162B2, or Pfizer, coinciding with the surging prevalence of the Delta variant in the United States. But this temporal association does not imply causality. The authors concluded further evaluation of mechanisms underlying differences in their effectiveness, such as dosing regimen and vaccine composition, are warranted. So, we are 158 days and counting. Inquiries from the defender, which I'm looking forward to seeing as well, have been ignored. According to the CDC's website, quote, the CDC follows up on any report of death to request additional, additional information and learn more about what occurred to determine whether the death was a result of the vaccine or, or unrelated. On March 8th, the defender contacted the CDC with a written list of questions about the reported deaths and injuries related to COVID vaccines. We made, they've made repeated attempts by phone and email to obtain a response to their questions. No answer has been given as of yet. This is Not So Mad Science, and I'm your host, Brother Harold Muhammad here on the Black Hole Radio Network. We are now 43 minutes, going toward 45 minutes past the hour of 7, and we're going to take a short break. 10-minute, 42-second break. And we're going to hear what anxiety disorders are because this virus is creating extreme anxiety in the American people. So we're going to replay something we reported on once for. Anxiety disorders. Distinguished future physicians, welcome to Stop on Step 1, the only free video series that helps you study more efficiently by focusing on the highest yield material. I'm Brian McDaniel, and I will be your guide on this journey through anxiety disorders. This is the third video in my playlist covering psychiatry, and we're going to review things like generalized anxiety disorder, PTSD, phobias, and panic attacks. Anxiety is uncontrolled fear, nervousness, and or worry about trivial or non-existent things. It is an unpleasant fear of future events that are unlikely to occur. Some patients have insight and realize that their uneasiness is illogical, but that does not alleviate symptoms. A certain level of anxiety is considered normal in many situations, but frequent anxiety or anxiety that inhibits function is pathologic. 
During anxiety, sympathetic nervous system activation can result in physical symptoms such as palpitations, tachycardia, shortness of breath, muscle tension, restlessness, lack of focus, sweating or chills, and changes in sleeping patterns. In order to make a diagnosis of anxiety, one must rule out other potential causes of these symptoms. The differential diagnosis for anxiety includes other psychiatric disorders, cardiac abnormalities such as myocardial infarction or valvular disease, endocrine disorders like hypothyroidism, and respiratory disease such as asthma or pulmonary embolism. Substances such as street drugs and prescribed medications must also be ruled out as potential causes of these symptoms. We're going to hold off on discussing most of the different treatment options for anxiety until a later video that will cover all of the pharmacology for the psychiatry section. That video will cover things like SSRIs, anxiolytics, and cognitive behavioral therapy, which can be used to treat anxiety disorders. However, during the video I will mention a couple of treatment options that are used for specific anxiety disorders. We will start our discussion with Generalized Anxiety Disorder, or GAD. You can see here in the top right corner, I give GAD a high yield rating of 2. For those of you who aren't familiar with the high yield rating, it is a scale from 0 to 10 that gives you an estimate for how important each topic is for the USMLE Step 1 Medical Board exam. GAD is a prolonged period of near constant anxiety. Their anxiety is not linked to a specific item, person, or situation, so it isn't a phobia. They usually worry about a wide variety of things, including school or work performance, finances, health, friends, and or family members. Their anxiety is generalized across many situations. Their anxiety frequently presents with physical symptoms and may be severe enough to impair function. A panic attack is a sudden onset period of extremely intense anxiety, accompanied by numerous signs and symptoms of anxiety. The attack is often associated with a sense of impending doom. These episodes usually last 10 to 30 minutes and are disabling. The patient returns to their normal level of function soon after the panic attack. They may be brought on by an inciting event or be completely unprovoked. I'd like to stop here for a moment to clarify the difference between generalized anxiety disorder and a panic attack. GAD can be thought of as a constant moderate level of anxiety, while panic attacks are short periods of severe anxiety. Panic disorder is recurrent panic attacks that are unprovoked and have no identifiable trigger. The onset of these anxiety episodes is unpredictable. Patients may be relatively asymptomatic between attacks, but often have anxiety about having more attacks. Their fear is related to the panic attacks themselves rather than a particular external stimuli. This differentiates panic disorder from panic attacks that are caused by things like phobias. Agoraphobia is anxiety related to open spaces and or crowded places. These people are afraid of being helpless or embarrassed in a situation that is difficult to escape from. This often leads to avoidance of such experiences, and in severe cases, these people never leave their homes. Agoraphobia is most closely related to panic disorder. In this situation, patients fear having an unexpected panic attack in a place where they may be embarrassed in front of others or help may not be available. 
However, agoraphobia can be the result of other psychiatric disorders such as specific phobia. Specific phobia is an excessive amount of anxiety related to a specific situation or item that interferes with function. Common examples include fear of heights, spiders, or medical injections. These individuals can be relatively asymptomatic in the absence of exposure to what they fear. Some individuals will adapt quite well and you won't even know they have a phobia because they are good at avoiding the exposure. For example, somebody afraid of heights may move to an area with no mountains or high-rise buildings. Specific phobia can lead to a panic attack. However, these attacks only occur as a result of exposure to what they fear. They will not have panic attack in the absence of external stimuli. This differentiates it from panic disorder, where the individual will have unprovoked panic attacks. In extreme cases, specific phobia can lead to agoraphobia. For example, if somebody is deathly afraid of spiders, they may never want to leave their house. Treatment can include exposure therapy. Here the patient creates a hierarchy of fears and is exposed to them in order of increasing level of fear. So a person who is afraid of heights will start with standing on a step stool and then slowly work their way up to using an elevator and going to the top of a skyscraper. By taking baby steps, patients are often able to do things that they would never have been able to do without the process. In certain situations, benzos may be used if the feared stimuli is infrequent and unavoidable. For example, somebody who is afraid of flying but only takes a few flights a year may be well controlled with benzos on an as-needed basis. Social anxiety disorder, aka social phobia, is anxiety in social situations such as public speaking, eating in public, or using public restrooms. This usually includes an intense fear of scrutiny and judgment from others. These patients may be relatively asymptomatic if they can avoid being the center of attention. Sociophobia can be thought of as a specific phobia where the fear is related to social situations. However, despite the similarities, the two disorders are separate diagnoses in the DSM. In extreme cases, social anxiety disorder can lead to panic attacks. Beta blockers are sometimes used on an as-needed basis for performance anxiety or stage fright. For example, if a person has to give a big presentation, you can give a beta blocker about 30 minutes before the meeting in order to block some of the sympathetic signals. They still have anxiety, but because the physical symptoms of anxiety are blunted, they won't realize they are anxious. Obsessive compulsive disorder is anxiety and intrusive thoughts that drive the patient to unusual repetitive actions called compulsions. The compulsions temporarily relieve the anxiety in some patients, while others feel like they just have to do their rituals. Common compulsions include counting their steps, repetitively washing hands, preoccupation with certain numbers, and rituals such as opening and closing doors repetitively. The patient often realizes that their fears and compulsions are irrational, but there remains a lack of control. OCD should not be confused with the similar sounding obsessive compulsive personality disorder, OCPD. There are some similarities between the two as both can include a preoccupation with things like order, cleanliness, and organization. However, OCPD patients 
lack the classic compulsions found in OCD. OCD patients also have insight, while OCPD patients do not. In OCD, they view their thoughts and behaviors as abnormal, unwanted, and distressing. In OCPD, they view their way of thinking as normal and beneficial. They don't realize they have a disorder. We will discuss OCPD in much more detail in a later video covering personality disorders. If you'd like to skip ahead to that video, you can click on this orange box here. Post-traumatic stress disorder is anxiety related to a traumatic experience that may include flashbacks, nightmares, and avoidance of certain triggers that remind them of the experience. These patients may also have hyperarousal, where they have an amplified response to external stimuli such as loud noises. Classically, the trauma is experiencing or witnessing a life-threatening event or sexual assault. Symptoms must be present for more than a month in order to make a diagnosis of PTSD. If these same symptoms last for less than a month, the patient will be more correctly diagnosed with acute stress disorder. That brings us to the end of this video. If you found it helpful, please leave a comment below. Feedback from our viewers helps us improve Stop on Step 1 and rank higher in search results. The next video in the psychiatry section is going to cover malingering, somatoform disorder, and factitious disorder. If you would like to be taken directly to that video, you can click on this black box here. Thank you so much for watching and good luck with the rest of your studying. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. This is Not So Mad Science with your host, Brother Harold Muhammad, here on the Black Hole Radio Network. I played that piece for this reason. The COVID virus and the current conditions in which we live today has created such a scare and such a horror amongst the American people that anxiety is now on the rise. So if we un begin to understand, we know what to look for in our families in the type of anxiety that they're going to suffer, not what they might suffer from, they are going to suffer from. The, the anxiety can take a multitude of forms, but its root cause is the fear of the loss of family, the loss of income, the loss of a home, the loss of relationships and friends due to the complications caused by the COVID-19 vaccine and the plethora of issues that result from taking the vaccine. We have a rough road ahead of us, everybody. And until we are ready, willing to take a stand for your own life, not allow ourselves to be herded like cattle into the chute to be hit in the head with a sledgehammer and slaughtered, we must educate ourselves 
beyond what we are told and learn to do for ourselves. And I'll tell you why. The CDC has been caught innumerable times manipulating the narrative of the pandemic of the so-called unvaxxed people. It was reported by Dr. Joseph Mercola, who said the following. According to the CDC, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the White House and most mainstream media, what we have now is a pandemic of the unvaccinated with 95% to 99% of COVID-related hospitalizations and deaths being attributed to the unvaccinated. Is this true? No. To achieve that statistic, the CDC included hospitalizations and the mortality data from January through June. The vast majority of the U.S. population was unvaccinated during that time frame. By January 1st, only 0.5% of the U.S. population had vaccines or received a COVID shot. It was not until mid-April that an estimated 31% had received one or more shots and as of June 15th, June 15th of this year, only 48.7% of Americans were fully vaccinated. Natural immunity offers a robust protection against all variants, whereas vaccine-induced immunity cannot, does not, will not give you the same degree of protection. The reason for this is because when you recover from a natural infection, you have both antibodies and T cells against all parts of the virus, not just the spike protein. Whereas according to Dr. Anthony Fauci, the Delta variant is both more transmissible and more dangerous than the original virus and previous variants. But real-world data shows actually weaker and far less dangerous, even though it does spread more easily. Again, according to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the White House and most mainstream media what we have now is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. This is a gross and malignant manipulation of the narrative of what is true. Selective reporting of the data and the truth. Selective usage of information, giving parts and pieces and not creating the whole picture. So according to the official narrative, 99% of COVID-19 deaths and 95% of the COVID-related hospitalizations are occurring among the unvaccinated. Well, 
Well, that is only true and factual if you include the data from the time when only 5% of America was vaccinated. In a July 16th White House press briefing, brothers and sisters, you all got to do your homework. I do mine. In the press briefing, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky claimed over 97% of people who are entering the hospital right now are unvaccinated. What? Really? Our government wouldn't lie. <laughs> Don't you believe it. But as reported by Fox News anchor Laura Ingram on the Ingram angle, and I quote, that statistic is grossly misleading. And in an August 5th video statement, Walensky inadvertently revealed how that 95 to 95, 99% statistic was manufactured, quote, or created. As it turns out, achieve these statistics. The CDC included hospitalizations and mortality data from January through June of 2021. It does not include the more recent data or data related to the Delta variant, which is now the most prevalent variant or strain in circulation. The problem is the vast majority of the U.S. population was unvaccinated during the period of time and the time frame when they're drawing their statistics. By January 1st, 2021, only 0.5% of the U.S. population had received a COVID shot. By mid-April, 31% had received one or more shots. And as of June 15th of this year, only 48.7% were fully vaccinated. Keep in mind that you're not fully vaccinated until two weeks after your second dose in the case of the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, which is given up to six weeks after your first shot. This is according to the CDC's public information. So those persons receiving an initial dose in June, for example, won't be fully, be fully vaccinated until eight weeks later, sometime in, in July or August. So by using statistics from a time period when the U.S. as a whole was largely unvaccinated, the CDC is now claiming we're in a pandemic of the unvaccinated. A gross manipulation of the truth by any other definition is just a lie. In an effort to demonize those who still have not agreed to receive this experimental poison into their bodies as a result of gene modification injections. So, Canadian viral immunologist and vaccine researcher Dr. Byron Brittle told Ingram about the claim that we're in a pandemic of the unvaccinated. 
and that the unvaccinated are hotbeds for dangerous variants. He said, and I quote, absolutely, it's untrue to be calling this a pandemic of the unvaccinated. It is certainly untrue that the unvaccinated are somehow driving the emergence of the novel variants. This goes against every scientific principle that we understand. The reality is the nature of the vaccines we are using right now and the way we're rolling them out are going to be applying selective pressure to this virus to promote the invert to promote the emergence of new variants. Again, this is based on sound principles of scientific judgment. Quote, we have to look no further than the emergence of antibiotic resistance. Principle is if you have a biological entity that is prone to mutation and the severe acute respiratory syndrome, coronavirus 2, which is the scientific name for COVID-19, like all coronaviruses, is prone to mutation. And you apply a narrowly focused selective pressure that is non-lethal. And you do this over a long period of time. This is the recipe for driving the emergence of novel variants or new variations. Quote, this is exactly what we're doing. Our vaccines are focused on a single protein of the virus. So the virus only has to alter one protein and the vaccines don't come close to providing sterilizing immunity. Quote, people who are vaccinated still get infected. It only seems particularly good at blunting the disease. And what that tells you, therefore, is that these vaccines in the vast majority of people are applying a non-lethal pressure narrowly focused on one protein and the vaccine rollout is occurring over a long period of time. That's a recipe for driving variations and mutations. And people will get sicker and sicker, and more people will die or suffer permanent injury. Natural immunity, dear friend, provides superior protection. Dr. Brittle also explains why natural immunity offers such a robust protection against all variations, whereas vaccine-induced immunity cannot. When you acquire the infection naturally, your body goes to war and it develops antibodies against all of the viral proteins, whereas the COVID shot only trigger antibodies for the one protein, namely the spike protein. As I said before, when you have antibodies against just one of the viral proteins, 
the virus only needs to mutate that one protein in order to evade your immune system. Here's what we have to understand. The virus is a living entity. It wants to survive. It fights back. It changes itself so that it can defend itself against your attack to get rid of it. Which is why it is necessary to augment the body's natural immune immunology system in your immune system so that when you have natural immunity, your antibodies will recognize all parts of the virus. So even if the spike protein is mutated, your body will recognize the parts of the virus and mount an attack against those. The SARS-CoV-2, currently known as COVID-19, works the same way other viruses do and has shown in Nature's Review Immunology Study. Nature's Review Immunology Study by Alejandro Seti and Shane Crotty published in October of last year, the study called the Cross-Reactive Memory T-Cells and Herd Immunity to the SARS-CoV-2 argued that naturally acquired immunity against the SARS-CoV-2 is potent, long-lasting, and very broad in scope. As you develop both antibodies and T-cells that target multiple components of the virus and not just one. So my question to you, Dr. Anthony Fauci, becomes, are you here to save lives? Or is your plan of eugenics the more effective way to depopulate the world? Since you sit on the board of the Gates Foundation for depopulation due to mass overcrowding. Oh, y'all didn't know that he sits on that board? I'm sorry to bust your bubble. If we are to depend on vaccine-induced immunity, as public health officials are urging us to do, we will end up on a never-ending booster treadmill. This will absolutely be necessary as the shot offers such a narrow band of protection against a single protein of the virus. Already, data around the world show vaccine-induced protein is waning and getting weaker rapidly in the face of new variants. And Moderna has publicly stated that the need for additional boosters is expected. So just how dangerous is the Delta variant? Again, according to the dubiously qualified in truthfulness, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the Delta variant is both more transmissible and more dangerous than the original virus and previous variants. He said this on July 4th of this year, and he told this, and I quote to NBC News, it is more effective and efficient in its ability to transmit from person to person. And studies that we've seen where they have been the variant 
that's dominated in other countries. It's clear and it that it appears to be more lethal in the sense of more serious. Allow you to get more serious disease leading to hospitalization and in some cases leading to death. In a June 29th interview, Dr. Fauci called the Delta variant a game changer for the unvaccinated people, warning it will devastate the unvaccinated population while the vaccinated individuals are protecting against it. That is a cold, straight-up frontal lie. Because every doctor of any conscience has said the vaccines do not protect you against the Delta variant. It mutated so that the vaccine is useless. You got to remember that Anthony Fauci of the CDC is not a clinician and has never treated someone infected with the SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19 vaccine. Other health experts and practicing physicians who treat COVID-19 patients all to the one disagree with Dr. Fauci's claims, arguing that not only is the Delta variant not more dangerous, it's certainly not more dangerous for the unvaccinated. As reported by Laura Ingram, who's a known, I guess the word for her, user of hyperbole, in her June 21 report, there's an evolutionary geneticist theory called Muller's Ratchet, which is true, which states, that as an outbreak starts to peter out or get weaker, the virus tends to mutate into a more transmissible form. But at the same time, it grows weaker, causing far less serious infections. According to epidemiologist and cardiologist Dr. Peter McCullough, this is exactly what we're seeing. Dr. McCullough told Laura Ingram this, and I quote, the good news is on the 18th of June, the United Kingdom presented their 16th report, 11 on mutations. Why it's named that, I don't know. And they're doing a great job, much better than our CDC. And what they demonstrated is that the Delta variant is more contagious, but far less deadly, far less worrisome. In fact, it's a much weaker virus than both the United Kingdom's alpha version and the South African beta version. It is important that we understand the Delta variant contains three different mutations, all in the spike protein. This, Dr. McCullough explains, allows this variant to evade the immune response in those who receive the COVID vaccines of any type, whether it be Pfizer, Moderna, or Johnson & Johnson. 
It is very clear, he said, and I quote, from the United Kingdom's Technical Briefing 13 that was published in June 18th of this year that the vaccine provides no protection against the Delta variant, a very mild variant. Whether you get the vaccine or not, patients will get some very mild symptoms like a cold and they can be easily managed. Patients who have severe symptoms or at high risk, we can use simple drug combinations at home and get them through the illness. So there's no reason now to push vaccinations. Dr. Brian Hooker from the Children's Health Defense Network has echoed Dr. McCullough's statement in his review. He says, and I quote, what we're seeing is virus evolution 101. Viruses like to survive. So killing the host, i.e. the human who is infected, defeats the purpose because killing the host kills the virus too. For this reason, New variants of viruses that circulate widely through the population tend to become more transmissive but less pathogenic. In other words, they will spread more easily from person to person, but they will cause less damage to the host, as in the common cold, which is an autoimmune disease syndrome, AIDS, but it is not HIV. It is an autoimmune disease. This vaccine, this poison, focuses on the spike protein, whereas natural immunity focuses on the entire virus. Quote, natural immunity, with a more diverse array of antibodies and T-cell receptors, will, W-I-L-L, will provide better protection overall as it has more targets in which to attack the virus, whereas vaccine-derived immunity only focuses on one protein of the virus, in this case, the spike protein. Once that protein of the virus has mutated sufficiently, the vaccine no longer is effective. And this it's not so mad science, and I'm your host, Brother Harold Muhammad, here on the Black Hole Radio Network. I want to share this. Real-world data from areas with high COVID injection rates show the complete converse or the opposite of what the media, the CDC, and the White House officials are telling us. In addition to the British technical briefing on number 16, which I just shared, we have additional data from Israel, Scotland, the state of Massachusetts, which is own program, and the country of Gibraltar. As of August 1st of this year, the director of Israel's public health services, Dr. Sharon Alroy Perez, announced half of all COVID infections were among the fully vaccinated. Signs of more serious disease among the fully vaccinated are also emerging 
as a result of the vaccine exacerbating their current medical condition, particularly in those over the age of 60. A few days later, on August 5th, Dr. Kobe Havi, the director of the Herzog Hospital in Jerusalem, appeared on their Channel 13 News reporting that 95% of the severely ill COVID-19 patients are all fully vaccinated, and they make up 85% to 90% of the COVID-related hospitalizations overall. As of August 2nd, 66.9% of Israelis had received at least one dose of Pfizer's injection, which is used exclusively in Israel. 62.2% had received two doses, and we are concerned. That's Israel, America's friend. In Scotland, official data on hospitalizations and deaths show 87% of those who have died from COVID-19 in the third wave that began in early July were all vaccinated. A CDC investigation of an outbreak in Barnstable County, Massachusetts, between July 6th through July 25th, found 74% of those who received a diagnosis of COVID-19 and 80% of all hospitalizations in the county were among the fully vaccinated. Most, but not all, had the Delta variant of the virus. The CDC also found that fully vaccinated individuals who contract the infection have as high a viral load in their nasal passages as unvaccinated individuals who get infected. This means that the vaccinated are just as infectious, if not more, than the unvaccinated. If you recall, four weeks ago in our eight-part series on COVID-19, we shared right here on Not-So-Mad Science on the Black Hole Radio Network, that the vaccinated people are now asymptomatic and carriers of the vaccine, as well as susceptible to getting sick from the vaccine. So once you're vaccinated, you're more likely to make somebody else sick than the unvaccinated who practice social distancing religiously. In the country of Gibraltar, which has a 99% COVID vaccination compliant rate, rate, cases have risen by 2,500% since June 1st. Well, damn. While those who benefit financially from keeping the pandemic going would like you to cower in fear at the thought of the Delta variant, there's no real, really scientific evidence that it's any worse than the original strain. It's more transmissible, yes, but far less dangerous, as its primary symptoms are that of a regular cold. 
According to Harvard and Stanford professors, the actual number of Americans dying from or with COVID-19 are actually at an all-time low. So alarmism is uncalled for. However, those who are contracting the disease and getting sick are the vaccinated, not the unvaccinated. And as for viral social media posts by doctors and nurses claiming hospitals are overflowing with unvaccinated COVID patients, <laughs> you want to believe that lie? You go right on the head. Be a neo-maxi Zunduibi and get sick. Most of these people are bots. We've repeatedly seen evidence that fear-mongering is being spread not by real people, but by fake accounts run by artificial intelligence. This includes the blue check accounts. We've also learned that many of the so-called fact-checking websites are in partnership with the vaccine manufacturers. There is one manufacturer of vaccines whose former board member, the chairman of their board, is now the chairman of the board of one of the fact-checking websites. So, that being said, as we come to the end of tonight's outstanding program, in my opinion, do not allow fear to dictate your decisions. We are a thinking people. We must use what God gave us to make sound decisions before we allow those who are looking for financial gain to make decisions for your life. Don't let what you see on television be what you do, what you use to decide your life. Don't let what you see on the internet and social media be what you use to decide your life. Fact check yourself. Do your homework. Yeah, it may be time consuming and it may be hard or you may not understand everything. Take your time. Be patient. Be thorough. And what you don't understand, make your phone call. Get an understanding. And then make a decision. As I repeat the words of my illustrious teacher, leader, and guide, the Honorable Minister Louis Farquhar, don't be foolish and take that damnable vaccine. Wait. And this is not so mad science with your host, Brother Harold Muhammad, here on the Black Hole Radio Radio Network. Leaving you as I came before you with prayers of hope and peace. That you do something to help save your own life and not leave it for others to decide. As I leave you now in the immortal words of that great black preacher from the Abyssinian Baptist Church in the city of New York, our illustrious brother who's gone now, the greatest black politician that ever lived, the Reverend Adam Clayton Powell, Jr., Keep the faith, baby. Keep the faith. Because God has something for you to do. Assalamu alaikum. And if it be his will, I will be with you all once again next week.
Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChumpaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VDW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.